All By Ourselves, a library podcast. My name is Mary Bear Shannon. I'm in the reference department, and I am joined today by my colleagues, Kim Christopher. Hello. Mandy Falwell. Hello. And Amy Moskowitz. Hi. And we are glad to be here for another episode of All By Our Shelves, a place where we talk about things that we have read, things we recommend, and things we would like to read. So this month, we are going to get started, and we're going to start with Amy. Amy, tell us what you've been reading. All right. I'm going to talk about the new Michael Pollan book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. If you read Michael Pollan's 2018 bestseller, How to Change Your Mind, you'll know he doesn't shy away from researching and writing about the world of psychedelics. I just finished his latest book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, and in it, he does comprehensive and at times very personal research on three psychoactive plants, the poppy, which produces opium, caffeine, and mescaline. While How to Change Your Mind focused primarily on the emerging science behind how psychedelics such as LSD, psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, and ayahuasca can not only alter consciousness, but also treat those suffering from depression and addiction. This Is Your Mind on Plants takes a similar yet different approach in focusing on the histories of each plant, their effect on human consciousness, the pros and cons of their use, and some cultural implications. The first section of the book is about the poppy plant, which produces opium. While opium itself goes back to ancient times, and most recently has been the cause for the drug behind our current opioid crisis, Pollan spends a good deal of time discussing the poppy and his research on it for Harper's Magazine back in the 90s. Illegal to grow in particular quantities, poppies can be purchased legally and be made into a consciousness-altering tea, the recipe for which can be found in the book. Ever the experimentalist author wanting to experience these plants for himself, Pollen ingests poppy tea. To see what the experience was like for him and others, you'll have to read the book. Next, Pollen goes on to take a deep dive into my drug of choice, caffeine. I drink at least one 20 ounce Yeti mug of black coffee a day. So I was both physically and emotionally affected while reading about the author's voluntary caffeine hiatus. Pollen, a self-proclaimed caffeine addict himself, swears off it entirely for a few months for the purpose of writing this book. And boy, does he suffer. This gives the reader a firsthand perspective of one's life with and without the drug. And I can relate. I feel a bit lethargic myself each day around 2 p.m. when my Yeti mug runs out. Those who understand will take a particular liking to this part of the book. Lastly, we get a glimpse into the world of the Native American medicine mescaline. This medicine, as it is called, is derived from cacti found mainly in the Southwest in California. Though still illegal for most to use, it has been removed from category one status for use by indigenous people for healing and ceremony. Curious about mescaline? You can read Aldous Huxley's 1954 book, The Doors of Perception, or just skim this comprehensive chapter. After that, he goes into a little bit of discussion about other drugs that come from cacti, and then comes back into his own experimental use of mescaline. While I found the sections on opium and mescaline fascinating, as I have no experience with either, I was riveted to read about Pollen's research into caffeine. 
Time Magazine says, quote, in this latest exploration of the enduring relationship between the human and natural worlds, Michael Pollan dives deep into how psychoactive plants, specifically opium, caffeine, and mescaline, impact our brains and our cultures. Pollan is a master of breaking down complex science into an engaging story and challenging long-held societal beliefs. His newest offering, which follows his examination of the science of psychedelics in 2018's How to Change Your Mind, aims to unpack our ideas about what constitutes a drug and fundamentally why we seek them, unquote. Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, a lucid in the sky with diamonds, look at the hows, whys, and occasional demerits of altering one's mind, unquote. And even Oprah Daly remarked that, quote, the omnivorously curious pollen pivots off his proactive how to change your mind with an enthralling odyssey into a trio of mind-altering drugs found in plants, opium, caffeine, and mescaline. In this wide-ranging, deliciously written study, he asks, why does one power us up each morning while the other two are shrouded in taboo? You'll never look at Starbucks Pike's Peak the same way again, unquote. This Is Your Mind on Plants is currently available through the Delaware County Library System as a book, both regular and large print, and audiobook, as well as on Libby as both an ebook and an audiobook. I actually have a question. You mentioned that there were negatives to his break from caffeine, uh, like that he suffered, but were there any positives? Because I also drink caffeine. I drink like a quad espresso a day, at least minimum. And I've often wondered if there would be any actual benefits to going off of caffeine. So he found it mostly a negative experience. He had trouble writing the book while he was off of it. He missed the experience. He talked a lot about, you know, walking by coffee shops and inhaling the aroma and being jealous of the folks that were in line. <laughs> so I think that overall, you know, he wished that he could have just stayed on caffeine. However, he talked to a few people who really lived the majority of their lives caffeine free, as opposed to Pollen, who really just did it for a shorter experiment. And those folks really seemed to live more wide-eyed, dare I say, you know, happier, uh, sober <laughs> lifestyles, healthier lifestyles. And they were really just couldn't say enough about living without caffeine. So I don't know if it's the length of time that you go off caffeine that really matters. If doing just a week, three months, you know, isn't the same as really living a life caffeine-free that really makes the difference. This is Mary, and I guess I am curious about what Pollen has to say about addiction and about, you know, plant mind-altering substances for people who really do truly have a substance abuse disorder. I think that's a really good question, and I was a little bit concerned going into reading this book, especially about the chapter on opium, because it is the drug that led to the opioid crisis that we're in right now. And I just didn't want him to praise the poppy. And so I just wasn't sure exactly how he was going to paint that. He takes a really careful approach and he takes a well-balanced approach, especially in that chapter. He does talk about how especially psychedelic drugs are not for the most part abused 
by folks. He also talks about how culturally, especially in indigenous cultures, when he talks about mescaline and some other drugs and medicines that come from cacti are used in ceremonies and in healing and how a lot of these come from ancient times. And so they're not used culturally the same way as addictive drugs are used today. They're perceived differently by a large group of people in our culture, and they're utilized differently. Well, for anyone who hasn't read any of his stuff before, would you say that his style of writing for this book, he was trying to convince you of the negatives or the pros, and was it his writing style that is convincing in the matters, I guess? That's a good question. I don't think that he's trying to convince his readers one way or the other. I think that it's mainly informative. I think that especially in the areas where he himself experiments with these drugs, and he does so in both of the books that I mentioned, it's to give the reader insight into um, what it's like for a person to be on these different psychedelics. So I just think that it's mainly to inform and to give the reader a chance to make their own informed decisions. Thanks, Amy. And so, Mandy, what have you been reading? My pick for the podcast this month is Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McConaughey. This book is available in physical form through the library system, but also available in ebook form through Libby and Overdrive. It is also available on the Nook readers in the Purple Group. Uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, wolves ran free in Scotland. They were deemed such a threat to travelers, livestock, and villagers, however, that they were hunted and killed to extinction in the area by the 1800s. This novel takes place in the present day and follows the story of Inti Flynn, who is in charge of the team who are meant to reintroduce wolves to the country, based on the success in the 90s of the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone Park in the United States. Her perspective in the book is that by thinning herds of deer of the sick or weak, the wolves are reducing and stabilizing the population of those in the area who eat seedlings and small trees before they have a chance to grow. Her team hopes that the reintroduction of wolves will serve to bring back the forests by allowing more to grow. During this process, as she fights with the community to accept her wolves, an abusive man named Stuart disappears and is presumed killed by her charges. She defends her wolves against a group of farmers who want to go out and kill all of the ones she had just introduced into the forest. Luckily, she has an ally, the police chief that she meets, Duncan McTavish, who tries to help her navigate a peaceful line between the humans who are angry about the wolves and the wolves themselves. She can't allow herself to fully trust him, however, and ends up conducting a parallel investigation to his to find out what actually happened to Stuart and who is really responsible for his disappearance and death. The book also goes into the background of Inti and her twin sister, Aggie, and a condition that Inti has had all of her life known as mirror touch synesthesia. As long as she's looking at something, her mind recreates the sensory experiences of what she sees as though she is the person and sometimes the animal who's experiencing the interaction. As she puts it, quote, if I see it, I feel it, and for just a moment I am them, we are one, and their pain or pleasure is my own. This condition gives her an incredible empathy, not only for her sister, who lives with her as she moves to Scotland for the rewilding, and who is largely speechless and self-isolated due to a traumatic experience, but also for the wolves. Inti tries to avoid feeling too much for the wolves by giving them numbers instead of names. Yet as the wolves move into the highlands and begin to have wolf cubs, Inti finds herself drawn to them despite her best efforts. 
The story moves from the present to the past of Inti attempting the reintroduction to the past of her and Aggie's experiences living both with their survivalist father in the woods and their detective mother in the city. Through flashbacks to the past, Inti's life and relationships with her parents and sister are explored, as well as her transition from the twin that is protected by her sister growing up to the twin who is the protector of her sister, though she is scarred in many ways by the same experiences that damaged her twin. I think that the the biggest way is that Inti doesn't trust people as she once did and isn't very good at social interactions or being diplomatic. This makes things difficult for her in the very political reintroduction of the wolves as people threaten the predators to, in their minds, protect their livestock and their livelihood. She gets defensive and angry and is so filled with rage all the time that it takes a long time in the story for Inti to realize that people are more than what they show you and can be different things at different times. This is a really interesting story. The condition that Inti has, the mirror-touched anesthesia, lends a really different perspective, as it is very much a part of how she views the world and is impossible for her to ignore. I think that it is also interesting how her perspective on individuals that she knows in her life changed throughout the story. In the beginning of the story, she is very much connected to her father and doesn't understand her mother at all. At the end of the novel, she has a much better understanding of her mother and more sympathy for what she goes to. The juxtaposition of concepts in this novel is interesting too. It deals with the concept of violence as a language that needs to be learned. The violence of humans toward the wolves and the violence of men towards women. Just the violence of people towards each other and the things that are said or not said between members of a small community who all know each other's secrets. This book too deals with the concept of hope from Inti beginning the story as a trusting person to her learning again how to trust toward the end of the book and from the attempts to rewild the Scottish Highlands, which can be seen as a kind of hope for a better future, to even something as simple as the introduction of new life with the wolf cubs. I guess that that's kind of a theme through the book, how the good and bad, the violence and the hope can exist in the same time, in the same place, in a community, even in an individual person. I liked this book. The main character has a different way of thinking of the world, and that comes out in what she says and how she thinks within the words of the story. For example, at a town meeting when people are yelling and angry about the wolves and the damage that they could do, she says, quote, if you truly think that wolves are the blood spillers, then you're blind. We do that. We are the people killers, the children killers. We are the monsters. It silences the room. The many ways that the themes are portrayed in the book are really layered and the characters are well-written and complex. The relationships between them are realistic and I love the character development throughout the book. Inti isn't the only character that grows too, but also Duncan, Aggie, and other characters change throughout the book. Even if some of that growth is only expressed at the end, I think that's part of the hope of the book too, that people can change with the introduction of new information, that you shouldn't make assumptions and discount people, and that people can always grow, no matter who they are. This is Amy. I was curious, Mandy, why you chose this particular book. It seems like such a deviation from what you've been reading recently. I know that you're just a, a voracious reader, but um, you've also recently been very into nonfiction. Um, what was it about this book that drew you to it? Well, I... Honestly, I have been reading a lot of nonfiction, you're right, so I kind of wanted to vary from that a little bit and do some fiction for this month. And I know that it's a silly thing, but I, I love the title. I love the concept of rewilding an area and how the wolves could save Scotland in some way, even as they were scary to the people there who thought they would kill their livestock and kill each other and everything like that. But also, I'm a huge fairy tale buff, and just woods are so important in the fairy tale universe that I kind of wanted to read it 
and see how the main character viewed the forest um, and see whether it was with as much compassion as I feel for the forest, you know, because I love to go for hikes and I love the woods and I love to go out into the woods. So I wanted to read something where someone shared that inclination. Uh, so I guess just a quick question is that in my experience reading some things that there are obviously wolves in the book, but when they use it in the title, it's just sometimes sideline the wolves and everything. And I love wolves <laughs> when I was a kid and loved them and everything. But um, are they prominent throughout the entire book or are they just mentioned at the start and then now and then? Or... They are integral to the plot because she becomes obsessed with wolves from a young age uh, because she learns about them when she's a child with her dad. And she becomes involved with reintroducing them in various areas of the world and is in charge of reintroducing them to Scotland. In some ways, they are a parallel to the community that she is becoming a part of when she moves to Scotland for the reintroduction. But also, it provides a contrast for her because she has a real affinity for the wolves that she does have for people because the wolves are simple in comparison to people and they have a loyalty that she really appreciates. Plus the deaths uh, that take place in this book look like they are done by wolves and she's so convinced that her wolves didn't do it and that's why she decides to go out and do her own investigation so she can determine what actually happened so she has something to go as a defense before the council with so they don't kill all of her wolves. So yeah without the wolves, this book couldn't exist. Andy, I, um, as someone who spent some time in the West and, you know, really heard a lot about the arguments about the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone and especially Idaho and Montana, you know, I feel like I've heard a lot of that side. And I was just wondering how this author balances the two perspectives. Does it tend to be more heavily towards the reintroduction of wolves? But is there any perspective in the book about what landowners, what ranchers, what farmers might be experiencing or their fears or, you know, the reality of what introducing wolves might mean for them. Uh, one of the evolutions that the character goes through is because she is coming into this situation angry and hostile toward the people who don't want the wolves there. And she has to learn, and through the process of her education, the reader also learns to have compassion for the farmer and the herdsman. So it's kind of like you start out with the one perspective, but there is enough of the other perspective that by the end of the book, you get a very balanced view and understand the reasons for, first of all, the reintroduction of the wolves as a concept, and second of all, the protective feeling that the farmers have for their lives livestock, which apparently in Scotland, they just let roam everywhere, which makes them perfect prey for larger predators. They have no pens, so it makes it really difficult to guard them. So it was a matter of changing the farmer's perspectives, but also in the process, Inti changed too. Great. Um, so Kim, tell us about what you've been reading. Hi, uh, so Kim here. So what I have read recently is the book, The Cat Who Saved books by Sosuke Natsukawa and this is uh, you could say a fantasy book real life sort of story almost even though it's fantasy where the 
plot is that Yon Rintaro Natsuki, his grandfather, has just died, and he's not certain what to do now because his grandfather has quite literally been there his entire life. He raised him, and he rubbed off his, shall we say, bookworm attitude onto him. He loves books himself, reads voraciously and everything, but with his grandfather dead, his grandfather didn't leave a will, nothing. It just happened so suddenly that he's left bewildered, and he's left just quite literally inheriting his grandfather's bookstore, which his grandfather owned, form and all that. But again, he doesn't know what to do because he's still in high school and he doesn't feel like he wants to run a bookstore as much as he loves books. And so he decides that he's just going to sell his grandfather's bookstore, sell off all the books and everything, and move away to where some other relatives live and just try and start anew. But just as he's in the process of doing all this, he's suddenly approached by this cat who talks to him, literally in human words and everything, and the cat says its name is Tiger and that it needs his help to save some books, to accompany him on a quest. And Rintaro, of course, being a rational person and bookworm, he's like, no, I'm hallucinating. This is probably just something happening because of my grandfather's death. But Tiger convinces him to accompany him on this quest, and he is plunged into this Alice in Wonderland kind of world where he has to embark on this quest and convince these individuals of the importance of books and why they should be present. So instead of it just being, you know, fantasy story, it's also just really this book that sort of argues for the importance of books and why we read why it's so important to read books so that's the basis of the book but it's just a really wonderful book just very short read under 200 pages but with those 200 pages Natsukawa he really explains why we read books and why we love them and when I'm reading those explanations of why books are important when he has to argue with these individuals it's divided into chapters where the first adventure or quest he goes on he has to convince this person in this Alice in Wonderland world who reads his books or just buys books and then locks them under lock and key literally you know like in a vault and he has to convince them that books are meant to be read and that you have to treasure them not just as treasure you put in a vault but just as something that's personal to you and that again they're not meant to just be locked up put on a shelf that you can pick them up and read them again and just all these arguments made me think about yeah that's why I love books myself and then also thinking about maybe that's what I think about books because we read and we just rarely think about why we love books and so it's just sort of wonderful thing about it. And only thing I would say is that to anyone who's thinking of reading the book is that since it's a translation of the Japanese language, the translator, Louise Hill Kawaii, hope I got her name right there, um, she was trying to remain as faithful as possible to the original language. So some of the wording at times when I got it started, I studied Japanese for a few years, so I understand the language, so seeing it translated into English is strange, where in Japan, they would sometimes address people by their title instead of their name, so in not... Now, Rintaro's case, since he inherited his grandfather's bookstore, he's technically the owner, so Tiger addresses him as proprietor. And now and then, the name Rintaro might be used, but for the most part, all the titles are used, so a little confusing if you're reading it, why are they using the title instead of their name, and so back and forth, and then some of the wording at times is also a little bit odd, because again... She's trying to remain as faithful as possible to the original Japanese language. Translating to English is not an easy task, but she did a good job with that. So, but yeah, just a really short read, wonderful one. Hey, Kim. Uh, this is Amy. I'm curious, 
who you would recommend this book to. It sounds like an excellent book to me. I was curious though, what type of reader do you think would enjoy something like this? I think anyone would enjoy it. I mean, you don't have to like fantasy to just like the basis of the story because again, it has that fantasy element of the main character being thrust into a Alice in Wonderland world, like I said, but the author is just trying to show people why we love books and why we read them. So you can love fantasy and read this and enjoy it, but at the same time, if you just want a short, good, comfortable, comfy sort of read, then that's a book I would recommend for anyone. So, Kim, uh, this is Mandy. I just want to know, why do you enjoy reading? Personally, for me, I would say I enjoy reading just a lot. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy because I like to envision in my mind what these worlds would look like and then sort of see how it would be translated sometimes because they do a lot of movie adaptations, comic book adaptations, and I like to look at those at the same time and think, no, that's not how I envisioned it or something else like that. And also my parents, they encourage me to just read the books instead of watching the movies or reading the comic books and so on. And so, yeah, as a reader, I just like to be able to envision how things play out in my mind first. And then maybe if they make a movie adaptation, watch a movie, but yeah, always the book is better. Kim, I'm wondering about the role of Tiger in terms of his role in helping this young man deal with his grandfather's death. It seems like that might be the beginning of a theme, but I was wondering if that fleshed itself out. To a certain degree, it did flesh itself out in regards to that you could view Tiger as sort of like that encouraging voice in the back of your head and telling you to keep going on because Rintaro, he's just really, really lost. He's just in despair almost in a way that he doesn't know what to do with his life because his grandfather was quite literally the pillar of his life. He was the family member who took care of him, and Tiger is just depicted as cynical because he tells Rintaro to go on the quest but doesn't help him on the quest, just offers words of encouragement. But Tiger does help to sort of mold him into a better person by taking him on this quest. And even though, again, he's depicted as sort of like cynical in terms of not helping Rintaro on the quest, he, again, just provides this support for Rintaro by encouraging him to come out of his shell that he's built around himself because, again, he's uncertain what to do with his life. So friends and family, they're always trying to convince him to get out of his shell because he's a bookworm, and in Japan they have what are called hikimori. I hope I got that right, but um, closed-in people. Just, you know, they shut themselves in, close themselves off from the outside world, no contact with friends, family. They just live by themselves, and so Tiger just helps push him out of that shell. Okay. Well, this is Mary, and what I've been reading actually kind of ties into that, Kim. First of all, I know a lot of the books that I have talked about on this podcast have been pretty serious, too, some nonfiction titles. And I I got to the end of 2021, and I was really done with 2021, and I actually put out a, a call on my Facebook page for some really light reads. I just couldn't deal with some of the the really serious themes that I had been wrestling with with some of the other books I've read during this past year. And I got some really good suggestions, and I wanted to talk about two of them. The first one is The Bookish Life of Nina Hill, and this kind of ties in, Kim, to your main character. Uh, Nina Hill is a complete bookworm, and she's an introvert, and she does exactly what she, you know, she's got this amazing life. She works in a bookstore, and she's really intelligent. 
And she also has this really kick-ass trivia team that's pretty cutthroat, and they do extremely well. And she really has kind of everything that she believes she needs. And then, of course, things go awry. And I think the chaos in her life starts with finding out that a father that she never knew existed has died. And it's revealed to her that she has, you know, a bunch of sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews. And she's just, you know, and they live really close by. They've been living really close by for a long time. And she's lived this very solitary life. She had a mother who really wasn't around a whole lot. She was raised by a nanny. And these folks really want to be her family. And that chaos is just almost too much for her to deal with. And it's interesting because it's revealed early on that she has ADHD and the way she compensates for kind of the disorganization in her head is to be hyper-scheduled in order to counter that chaos and the disorganization that tends to come with that condition. But unfortunately, some of that hyper-scheduling leaves her kind of rigid and unbending, and it can get her into a lot of relational trouble. And I think that the first chaos, which is finding out about this father, and then also making her really uncomfortable is her trivia nemesis, Tom. And of course, he turns out to be cute, funny, and deeply interested in her. And I think that it really shakes her world because she has things all kind of neatly in a box and scheduled. And I think that's what makes this a great book. What I like about it is that she grows as a character. It's funny. It's honest. It's quirky. I I definitely identified with Nina and her strong desire to keep a planner because she had a planner and it always began with, you know, what she was intending to do for the day. It didn't always happen. And I see for myself that wanting to be scheduled and be organized and sometimes that can keep me from taking risks because that's really, at least personally, that's where my creativity and my growth happens. You know, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a bookworm, but I did recognize some of her introverted tendencies. I think I'm kind of mixed. I can have some extroverted qualities, but I really do like my alone time. So I definitely got it when she was like, yeah, I don't want to go out. And it's safer. It's safer being introverted too. And, you know, again, I really liked seeing the growth of Nina and some of the other characters. It was definitely a light read. It was fun to read, and I didn't have to get upset about anything, which was really the intended goal. I listened to this as an audiobook, but, you know, you can get it as a regular book. It is in our catalog as a regular book or a book on CD. You could also access it on Libby as an ebook or an audiobook. So I really highly recommend that. It's The Bookish Life of Nina Hill by Abby Waxman. So the second recommendation that someone gave me was actually a mystery, and I am a mystery fan. So this was very different than some of the mysteries that I read. I know I've talked about Maisie Dobbs, which is much more of a classic English mystery. This is set in contemporary United States, just in the D.C. area. It was definitely a light read. It was funny. It is the first in a series. It's called Finley Donovan is Killing It by Ellie Cosimano. And I just actually ordered the sequel for the library, which is Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead. But in Finley Donovan is Killing It, the irony is that she's really not killing it as the story begins. She's a stressed out single mom of two fairly young children. She's a struggling novelist. Her life is really in chaos. And the book she promised her literary agent isn't written. It hasn't even been begun. She's been doing some research about it. And then, of course, she is, she's divorced. And her ex-husband, 
who kind of holds all the purse strings because she is a writer, just fired the nanny without telling her. And that morning, she, uh, as the story opens, she has to send her four-year-old to school with hair duct taped to her head after an incident with the scissors. So that's the chaos that we are opened to. And she ends up meeting with her literary agent, and things just go crazy and awry. She's in a Panera, which she'd actually been banned from, which I loved, the fact she'd been banned from the, the Panera for not good behavior. So she is, she is in disguise meeting with her agent. She's talking about her latest crime novel, and somebody overhears her plot and mistakes her for a contract killer. And so, and then she inadvertently accepts the offer to dispose of this problem husband. And she's also really broke. So she's thinking, wow, $50,000, I could use $50,000. You know, it really is a comedy of errors because the husband, of course, ends up dead. And then she, you know, without giving too much away, she thinks she has killed him. But in fact, there are other forces afoot. And so she's trying to figure out what happens to this guy. And it's what she's finding is she can write about crime and mystery, but it's much more difficult to do it in real life. And so she's really tangled into this investigation. The plot has lots of twists and turns that she takes with her sidekick, Veronica, which is the nanny that got fired, and without her knowledge. There is also some love interest, too, which is kind of fun. Some are, you know, stronger than others. I thought it was a unique plot, and it kept me reading to the end. (laughs) So I read this before Christmas. I was actually in a hospital waiting room all day, and I actually read this cover to cover in one day. It was a fun read. I couldn't put it down. I was really glad to have something to distract me that day. And so I really highly recommend this book. You can get it as a book. You can get it as a book on CD. You can also access it digitally on Libby as an ebook or an audiobook. So that's what I've been reading. So, Mary, I guess just one question about finally. Donovan is killing it <laughs> that you read it cover to cover so it's and the way you describe it sounds very engrossing but since there's a sequel now what would you say to people to convince them to keep reading like read the first one then read the second one as well well it, it'll be really interesting to see if she follows the same kind of formula because it really was at times it was just very fast moving and just you never knew what was <laughs> what was going to happen I'm assuming that there may be some other kind of twisting and turning mystery that Finlay Donovan and her sidekick Veronica come across I think if she can keep up that formula and that twisting turning I think it could be really really successful and I think I definitely want I mean I just ordered the sequel here for the library and I'm definitely going to read it just because it was very diverting let's just put it that way (laughs) at a time I needed to be diverted (laughs) yeah sounds like a monk mystery almost to me (laughs) yeah yeah so you seem to really enjoy both of these books this month if our patrons could only read one or the other which one would you recommend oh gosh that's hard (laughs) I I think I'd probably have them read the bookish life of Nina Hill just because I think that it is um I guess I just liked it better. Maybe I identified with the character more. So I kind of liked her growth 
I think that's probably what I liked. I mean, I think that Finlay Donovan, there was some growth in that, but I really felt like Nina Hill was being challenged. And also, the way she wrote it was really showing some of the absurdity of Nina's thinking. And then eventually it kind of comes around to, yeah, that, that didn't help whatever relationship she was working on or the way she was conducting her life. So I think I came away from the bookish life of Nina Hill feeling like she really had grown. So my question is, both books that you read deal with books, The Bookish Life of Nina Hill and Finley Donovan, who is an author. Now, in The Bookish Life of Nina Hill, they equate being bookish, reading a lot, with introversion. Is Finley Donovan equally introverted? Like, do you think that that is reflected in her personality as well? I wouldn't. I think Finlay Donovan has this idea of what a writer should be, but I think she's on the cusp. That's the thing that I think is really interesting. She's written two books. She really hasn't taken off in terms of what it's going to do for her as a writer. And I think what's interesting is that the experience of what happens in terms of figuring out why this guy died, I think it actually informs her to be a better mystery writer. And so I think, I guess I wouldn't necessarily think that she is bookish in that sense. I mean, she's certainly creative in her writing and the stuff that she produces during this mystery really kind of tips her over the edge in terms of being a very, very popular, a very good writer. But I really did not get the sense that, you know, books were kind of a a means to an end, being able to support her family with a skill that I think she had, but really needed to develop. Um, And that's what I see in that. So I don't really see her as a bookish person. So anyway, that is what our reference department has been reading for the month of January. We are so glad that you joined us for All By Our Shelves. Join us next month in February for what we've been reading in that month. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.